to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, Wednesday, December 6th, 2017 edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Tonight we're going to be talking about Hurricane Harvey and kind of the before and during Harvey and then the, uh, the after effects of Harvey. We have a great uh, group of guests with us tonight. We have Tom Johnstone. He is the uh, meteorologist in charge at the North uh, National Weather Service in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. We also have Lance Wood on. He's the science and operations officer at the National Weather Service in Houston, Texas. And joining us again this week is Ashley Morris, who uh, lives in the Williamson County area of Texas. So uh, we have a lot of Texans on with us tonight. So uh, hopefully if you are uh, joining us tonight from Texas, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is a live podcast slash broadcast. We are streaming on multiple outlets. Uh, Periscope, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, or you uh, are hearing us on the uh, podcast restream. That'll probably be up tomorrow. And uh, if you have any questions during the show, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. You can do that many different ways. You can comment on uh, either stream, Periscope or Facebook Live, or uh, you can tweet us a question at Carolina WX Group or leave us a comment and, on our Facebook page or our YouTube page, and we will uh, look at those throughout the show as well. And if you're listening on the podcast and you have a question for our guest um, later on, uh, we'll let them uh, share their social media accounts. That way you uh, can reach out to them. So it is an action-packed show, and uh, we want to get started with that. I do want to say before uh, this uh, yesterday, December the 5th, was our fourth year of existence. So uh, Ricky and I started this thing four years ago, and we're still here, Ricky. They haven't kicked us off the airwaves yet. So The funny thing is, didn't we start it because of a snowstorm? We did. It was a snow and ice storm, and that's what we're talking about again. Funny, is we we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that, I guess, in a little bit. But uh, yeah, excited to have four years now, Scotty, and uh, hoping for four more years, I guess, that were longer outlasting the other stuff. But anyway, uh, a lot to talk about tonight with Harvey. I guess I'll just jump right into it here. Uh, Lance and Tom, so happy to have you join us tonight. Uh, obviously, we're glad things have calmed down a lot at your offices now, too. Uh, for just some background information, we'll let Tom go first. Give us a little bit of information about your primary role at the office and uh, how long you've been there. Yeah, I've been here at the National Weather Service in Corpus Christi for about three and a half years now. Uh, I'm the meteorologist in charge, so just responsible for making sure everything runs well, that we continue to put out excellent forecasts and warnings, um, and just deal with day-to-day -day operations. So it's, it's been it's been quite a ride. Got to deal with both Tropical Storm Bill uh, and now, of course, Hurricane Harvey. So a little bit of tropical uh, experience there, certainly in my time. All right. And Lance, what's your primary role up in uh, Houston? Yeah, so uh, I'm the Science and Operations Officer, um, and I've been here a while. I've been in that role since uh, late 2006. Um, primarily, you know, responsible for getting sort of the latest research into operations, uh, training forecasters, still do, you know, a decent amount of forecasting. So I'm out on the desk still, you know, maybe 25% of the time. So it's a, it's a pretty neat job. I get to do a little bit of a lot of things I like. And so something that always interests me, you know, we have a Sioux at, at Morristown that I talk to every once in a while. Uh, and so let's say in a situation like Harvey, is it all hands on deck? Is everyone forecasting or do you have a primary role that you play during a major storm? Yeah, that's a good question. So we have to divide up the management team uh, because a, a lot of the times in those bigger events, we're the ones doing sort of our partner briefings uh, kind of with each advisory. So I took the night shift um, and was kind of the solo manager at night. And if you remember Harvey, we had a lot of fun at night. <laughs> That's when a lot of the heaviest rain fell. So I did that for maybe, I guess, about six nights in a row. And they were 
usually 12 hour shifts, but the, we had, a, I had a couple that extended to, you know, 14, 15 hours, but mainly doing a lot of the briefings, kind of supervising what's going out in the operations area, pop up, you know, I try to try to solve them. Lots of coffee, but, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I drink more coffee than normal. I can definitely tell you that much. <laughs> for, for us here in Corpus, it was a little slightly different situation. Obviously, you'll probably hear Lance or I or both of us mentioned how this Harvey was really two different storms for, for our two areas. Um, you know, we had to let the we had to put the hurricane shutters down. Um, so you know, we were all hands on deck. Plus, the region, our, our regional office in Fort Worth, had deployed three meteorologists and an extra electronics technician. So we had 24 people living in the office for three days, um, which creates a lot of its own unique challenges. Um, but you know, we worked 13-hour overlap shifts, split the office into two groups, and just went at it for 72 hours. Being hurricane offices, do you guys have any additional resources or, or equipment or anything to deal with these kind of threats? Um, again, our, our office is totally different than the Houston office uh, in terms of how we're located and what our facility is like. Um, we really don't. We have a facility that, that's hardened uh, more as such than, than inland offices are. Um, we have a 500-gallon tank on our external building generator that powers the office for several days. Um, but no, it's it's just you know we're we ride it out. Right. Yeah, and and here we're I think in the Houston office here we're the only weather office that's co-located with emergency management here in Galveston County. So we are a true kind of emergency uh, you know response building. So we have uh, bunks, although we we usually don't use them because there's so many people here with other agencies using them. But we have a a large kitchen and so the county emergency management sort of takes care of some of the things that we would you know a normal office would have to take care of on their own okay and we'll certainly revisit that because that's a, a interesting story i'm sure that kind of played out to your advantage almost during the height of the storm let's go back to before the storm let's kind of take this chronologically you know with harvey it was really a storm that at one time was a weak little disturbance and wasn't really forecasted to to be a huge threat, and then it got into the Gulf, and we saw explosive development of the system. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about the kind of the rapid intensification of Harvey and how you guys saw that play out at your offices. Yeah, for me, and Lance, you can fill in after, after I'm done. I'm sure you'll have something to add. But you know, there, there was a personal side to this for me because I, I worked the day I worked a long-term public forecast shift on the Sunday before Harvey. So I was responsible for that Friday, Saturday period as part of my forecast. And yeah, at that point, we're looking at, you know, maybe some beneficial rains for the area, weaker system traveling to the south. There were some ensemble members that were, were hinting at maybe something being a little more like it was, but not, not great concern. Um, I ended my shift at three o'clock and I got on a plane and I flew to Nashville, Tennessee for the eclipse. Um, so that was pretty much what, what that week was going to be all about for me. And then on Monday, as we finished up the eclipse, I got a text from the office basically saying, might want to think about coming back. And the next day I was on a plane back to Corpus. And yeah, the, the rapid intensification was was incredible. We really started seeing some possibilities of that on Tuesday, better trends for that on Wednesday. And then Thursday, it was just clear the thing was going to be a, going to be a monster. Yeah, that we, we kind of, you know, we knew we were probably going to be on the periphery of, of, the, of the landfall as far as impacts. So for us, it was kind of trying to figure out, it was in the early part of the week as well, like Tom was talking about. I, I specifically remember Tuesday being the day where I was fairly confident we were going to be in a tropical storm or hurricane watch uh, on Wednesday. So I was 
or at least by Thursday, but we weren't exactly sure of that timing, but we were doing preparations on Tuesday. And it's funny, we, at that point, it didn't, the inland track was not clear at all. So we had really, when we were preparing for the landfall at first, we were kind of more worried about our Southern areas that they're adjacent to Tom's area um, there in Corpus. And so we, we really didn't transition to, hey, this is gonna be a big deal for us after landfall until kind of midweek when some of the model runs started to show, hey, Harvey may slow down and drift. And then it was, which way is it gonna drift? Is it gonna go into the hill country and be San Antonio's problem? You know, is it gonna go down to South Texas or is it gonna come this way? And we didn't get more confidence on that until kind of later in the week. So uh, it, it was, we had to switch gears a bunch <laughs> as to what's actually gonna happen to us. And with Harvey, it was kind of the first major hurricane we had the opportunity to watch close to land with our new satellite go 16 uh tom especially tell me about what those images were like just coming into your office and how you were able to utilize them and it, it was non experimental operation all that stuff but still it was terrifying to be honest it was terrifying um you know we weren't sure until maybe four hours before that, that it wasn't going to uh, take a little bit of a jog to the left and and, and hit corpus directly um, but as it was moving inland, the salad imagery, that, that perfect presentation of the eye gave it, and, and all of the vortices in the eye too. And we may, we want to revisit some of those later because that was fascinating. Um, but we use that as a decision support tool to help with the emergency managers um, who were directing rescue and recovery operations in the eye of Harvey. So the salad imagery, the radar imagery, and the relationship that some of the people here at the office have had with the, with the partners there um, was able to do something I've really never heard of before. We're actually, you know, coordinating rescues in an eye. So they were going out and getting people, I assume probably in Rockport and Port Aransas and stuff during the almost the calm of the storm? Yep, when, to giving them down to the minute estimates on how much time they had, when to get people back in. Uh, the, the, the big hotel there in Fulton where a lot of the storm chasers were, that facility basically was failing. People were rescued, moved to a, a stronger building from there. And they went out to multiple calls during the eye and had to rush back to the emergency operations center there in Rockport. And um and just hunker back down. So yeah, the the set that all the imagery and the expertise of the forecasters here uh, went a long way, I think, in in there being no direct fatalities with the landfall. That's that's simply incredible. I mean, you, you know, we always hear about people venturing out during the eye, but it's something to think about. You know, that's actually a potential rescue operation time frame. Yep, Scott, it was. Yeah, Tom, you you were just speaking about the storm chasers, and obviously, uh, I guess the blue shed from Jeff Piotrowski. I uh, kind of uh, took over Harvey, you know, for a little bit. But talk about the importance of, of, of those storm chasers. Were, were they relaying information to you guys? What was it like communication-wise with you guys and the storm chasers who were right there in the middle of it? I don't remember any direct communication with them. We were monitoring streams as we could. Uh, most of the reporting we were getting was, was, was through direct communication, either text or phone calls with emergency management folks uh, as the eye came in. So we didn't have a lot of direct interaction with the storm chasers. When an eye is hitting like that, what is the primary thing that's going on at the office? You know, with hurricanes, a lot of times it's the lead up to the storm, the preparation, the forecast ahead of it. But right when the storm's making landfall, what's going on in an office? Well, I mean, this was the first time we've had to issue an extreme wind warning. Uh, which is winds in excess of 150 miles an hour. We actually had issue three. The agency modified the extreme wind warning policy more or less on the fly because of Harvey, uh, where the, the original thought on, on the extreme wind warning was it's a, it's a one-time issuance. You issue it, it's a hunker down warning and you move on. 
the slow movement of Harvey and the expanse of its wind fields and, and how far inland those extreme winds went required us to issue it a second and then a third time to give that extreme wind heads up to folks further inland. Um, so that was that was a lot of it. We're, you know, we're, we're monitoring um, a lot of communications. We're answering a lot of phone calls, even even as that eye is moving inland. Um, here in the office, we're dealing with structural issues and water coming into the office. So it was it was the fastest 18 hours of my life for sure. And and that was the amazing thing to me. You know, you look at Rockport and you look at some of the cities right where the eyewall hit. I haven't seen Category 4 hurricane damage like that in a long time. Speak to a moment of the strongest wind gust you guys saw and just some of the damage that was there along that eyewall. It, it looked, you know, we, we were out there within a couple of days and, and the pictures were were, were staggering. We, we Honestly, we kept waiting to hear about a mass casualty event and, and thank God it didn't happen. Um, it was a lot of EF2 and, and a fair amount of EF3 damage in the eyewall. Um, there, there were areas of, of focus damage, we believe, with some of the some of the vortices. We we had one one of the eyewall vortices. We measured 228 mile an hour winds just off the surface, uh, with an estimate from the radar. Uh, still waiting to see. There was a uh, Doppler on wheels actually at the at the Rockport Airport, and we cannot wait to get our hands on that data and see some of those smaller vortices. Um, but it really showed for us the importance of construction quality because homes that were newer and built to the newer code, which really category four, those homes suffered some damage. The older homes, homes that were not built to code were gone. They were destroyed. So investing in, in, in better construction and modern construction uh, techniques um, made it look like areas where some areas were destroyed and some areas were, were hardly touched. That was as much about construction quality as anything. That's incredible. Just like South Florida sometimes with Irma. Um, Ashley, can you speak to a moment on those codes in Texas and what they require now? Uh, yeah, definitely. So really, it's really cool when we um, improve our codes and stuff like that. It's basically known in emergency management as mitigation. So in, when we're doing mitigation, basically, we want to push people to build better houses to prevent damage. It's less costly after the disaster, things like that. Um, I can't really use any direct examples on like any laws or anything that have been passed as of now. But I know every event, usually they'll go back in They'll send engineers in and do case studies on what the damage was. And then usually because it's on the minds of the government, local, state, um, national, they will pass new codes that they think that will help prevent that kind of damage in the future. So it's always very reassuring when we see uh, mitigation being brought up. And that was a big thing in Harvey, especially in Houston right now. There are some really big mitigation projects that we think we're going to get a lot of grant money on, which is great because it's going to save us money later. That's good news. Um, uh, this question posed for both Tom and Ashley. Uh, what were evacuations like? Were there evacuations along that where the eyewall was predicted to come ashore? And then how far inland did those go? The evacuation, the mandatory evacuation orders were in uh, Rockport, Fulton, basically Aransas County, San Patricio County, which includes the other side of the bay from Corpus Christi. Uh, Port Aransas, which is out on the island, was under a mandatory evacuation. There were several other communities up there, um, and, and those were those were followed closely. But we have every reason to believe the, the estimates are 30 to 40 percent of people stayed, rode the storm out. We've heard dozens of accounts of people riding the storm out on boats, um, people riding the storms out in mobile homes. Um, you know, terrifying. They'll never do it again, um, but but terrifying accounts. Uh, the city of Corpus Christi did not have a mandatory evacuation. They strongly recommended folks get out if they could. Um, and and in the end, as I mentioned, there was no direct loss of life. So it's certainly something to be said for decisions that were made. 
Yeah, and I can also follow up. So I'm from Williamson County, and that's north of Austin. So um, our county wasn't looking at any kind of evacuations or anything like that. Uh, we were more prepared for uh, coastal residents moving up because usually people are going to be traveling north, more inland. So we have some plans in place where we can open up some shelters as a part of agreements that we have with coastal communities and things like that. Uh, so we were watching that for a while and we were really unsure how many people were evacuating um, and how many people were leaving. So we thought there were gonna be a lot more people. So we were really ramping up, preparing shelters and doing all of that. But the flow of people didn't seem to be as many as we thought. So I don't know what happened there, but I guess it's good because we were over-prepared instead of under-prepared, so. For sure. Um, Shay, you wanted to bring something up about SCO 16 and kind of the lightning data that we saw when the eye wall was approaching. Sure, so um, yeah, either Lance or, or Tom, whoever's more comfortable talking about this, if they thought it was a good talking point. Uh, we, we had something this year that we didn't before, which was the new GO-16 satellite global lightning mapper, the GLM pro program with it. Um, and it was actually able to capture some really interesting information about the storm. During rapid intensification, we saw just, it seemed like an unlimited amount of energy along the northern and northeastern banding of the storm. And I'll just screen share uh, what I have, just a, a YouTube video here <coughs> to everybody. Can everybody see it? Yep. You're good? Okay. Yep. Um, so I'll hit play, and this is um, on the 25th, 6 UTC, and it's going in. And you can just see the, the constant uh, high energy banding around that side of the storm. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of this energy is because it's over the Gulf, but this was during the rapid intensification stage right here. And I wanted to kind of get your idea or maybe some, some thoughts or theories on why most of the, the convective energy was on this side of the storm and not pushing off to the north or the northwest quadrant you want to i think just sideballing it that's you know tropical tropical systems making landfall in this part of texas the south the south quadrant the west quadrant tends not to have nearly as much moisture with flow off the land it just seems like that eastern quadrant is where that very strong convergence deep moisture instability was really focused um you know with that the real deep convection heading up into houston and, and, and in this case southern louisiana uh, that, that would be one initial guess I would have. I don't know if you want to build on that, Lance. Yeah, I know there's been some studies on hurricane intensification and lightning, and it, I think it's been a bit inconclusive. Um, I do know that later on in Harvey's life, when we had the rain band, so Harvey's already well inland, and we had a, the, the rain band that produced all the flooding Saturday night into Houston, the 20-plus inches. It had incredible, you know, lightning activity. And I think what we might have been seeing there is it wasn't purely warm core any longer, that there's probably a mix of some cold core processes and warm core. So it definitely was a sign of instability. There's no doubt, especially that Saturday night where we got uh, you know, pretty much hammered with the unbelievable rainfall rate. So there, there's gonna be a lot studied there. I've talked to some of the sport lightning guys that are really looking, you know, this is new data. So we haven't seen lightning quite this way before those real-time flashes like that and, and you can kind of see the aerial extent visually so it'll be interesting to see what they came up with i think we have more questions than answers right now i, I think the, the the lightning strikes around the eye wall at landfall were fascinating i, I think there's a lot to learn there too i like i said this is new data and it's it's not a data set we've had operationally in the past so it's it's going to open up a whole new uh 
whole new opportunity for science. I just thought it was really impressive how fast that storm blew up there and, and you know, kind of putting into factors like the, the sea surface temperatures of the Gulf at the time, the depth of those warm temperatures and just the, the sheer energy and maybe the surface roughness or, or friction as it came onto land and, and just all that energy bottled up there. I mean, and we haven't had a storm like that in quite some time. In fact, the Gulf has been relatively quiet overall uh, for several years until this one came along. It kind of came across to Yucatan and just blew up and, and it was forecast, which was good uh, because it gave people some time. But uh, the lightning mapper I thought was fascinating, just seeing that kind of energy along those sides of the, the storm. We're lucky that Harvey ran out of water. Uh, certainly not for Houston, it didn't run out of water, but it ran out of golf because um, it was strengthening right up to landfall. It was strengthening. So, you know, would it have reached Cat 5 with 12 more hours? Who knows? Glad we didn't have to find out. Jared, you had a picture up earlier that I, this one really kind of took the cake uh, <laughs> as far as the eye while running ashore. And I didn't know if you wanted to ask a question based with that or. Yeah, no, let me, uh, let me pull this back up real quick. Just show everybody. Uh, so. I, I usually, every time we have an, a weather service person on, uh, they get very nervous about the fact that I have AWIPS uh, for some reason, but um, I do have a public copy of AWIPS and uh, and a, a, a kind of a soul who uh, hosts a server. And so I was able to get, uh, <clears throat> so as I, I was able to get this, this is 30 second go 16 imagery um, as the eye was crossing over and uh, you can kind of see some of the stations there and then just some of them just start to disappear after a while. Um, you know, what, how was this data, uh, you know, I know preliminary, non-operational, unsafe, known to California to cause cancer, but, um, you know, how was this used in operations? You talking about ghost 16 data in general, or I mean, this it's just like the 30, the 30 second, one minute data. I, I mean, like I said, it was, we, we were looking at it continuously as we were, as we were briefing core partners in the eyewall. It was, um, you know, we it, it'll, we could see the mesovortices in the eye wall with the GO-16 data clearly. It, on the visible imagery before the sun set, there was, you know, clearly four distinct mesovortices in the eye wall. And then you could see those continue with with the IR imagery as, as, as night fell. Um, it was it was just a, it was just a stark reminder to us how powerful the storm was, how much energy was involved with it. Um, and it helped us, like I said, provide intelligence to our core partners there in the eye. For them to do their job safely. So let me get one last thought from you, Tom, on yeah. what Harvey will go down as being rem remembered for in your CWA. Uh, in our CWA, it was a windstorm. Mm -hmm. uh, there was surge. We had peak of 12 and a half feet of storm surge. A lot of storm surge damage um, on the backside of Rockport and on the backside of Port Aransas. Um, but predominantly, we're going to have we're going to have wind damage with this storm. So it's going to be remembered as 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 a 150 mile an hour wind gust hurricane. Was that surge that happened once the eye passed and the wind switched direction? No, it was it was driven locally by the winds. Okay. So it, it, this was not a storm like Ike that had it was a large storm that had a lot of time to build up. Um, it was really local wind effects that drove primarily winds onto the west facing sides of the uh, of the bays there. Um, a little bit of surge on the on the north side of the storm pushed up into the bays with a strong onshore flow, but most of the those are relatively um, unpopulated areas. So most of the surge damage um, was to the south of the eye of the eye with a strong west uh, offshore flow. Gotcha. A lot of times, you know, we see surge in uh, the bays 
around the Outer Banks uh, with the wind direction switching with the eyes coming ashore. So interesting stuff. The wind well, the water levels dropped a lot in Rockport, actually, with, because the winds were blowing the water away from that side of the bay. Gotcha. Well, let's transition just a little bit. Uh, thanks for all your information down in your area. Really appreciate that. And let's head up to Houston and talk a little bit about what the storm was known for. And I think everyone almost has heard the story by now, you know, kind of the, the memories and the pictures of Harvey. But Lance, let's go back before the storm once again and talk about kind of the time leading up to it and these cr crazy, for lack of a better term, QPF forecast that came out predicting 50 inches of rain and the numbers that everyone kind of latched onto. Talk about the just the thoughts in the office during that time and then talk to me about the WPC excessive rainfall outlook that went high for the first time ever on day three. Yeah, so we were looking at all of that and I think as you remember, you know, the QPF forecast basically, you know, gradually ramped up um, and it, it, was, it was a lot of rain even being forecast before landfall. And then the numbers kind of became staggering, especially, you know, when, when Harvey made landfall um, on Friday, that Friday evening. During the day on Fridays, we started forecasting, you know, isolated amounts around 40 or even even potentially maybe a little higher in some areas. It, you know, we, we were trying to trying to kind of, we were asked a lot about our confidence. One of the things you run into with a forecast where maybe nobody's really ever seen before is you have to get them to believe it. Um, so we, we struggled with that a little bit because some people kept questioning us, you know, you really think we're going to get this much rain, you know, and we point to, well, you know, most, most of our model guidance is in agreement of seeing these kind of really extreme amounts. So we would go back to talking about, you know, models being in agreement, some record, I'm sure their record model forecast of QPF will probably dig into that later. So we started coming up with words like, you know, well, what is, what are the impacts going to be? with say 40 plus inches of rain. I, I remember thinking that and you know, it's, we thought, well, catastrophic is a good way to describe what's gonna happen. And then we, disastrous. I mean, we were, we were really trying to grab what we call kind of mega descriptors to paint the picture in the briefings because when you just say 30 or 40 inches, you know, it's, you just don't see that. And if you have seen it, it's only a few people ever. So we really tried to paint a picture of structure flooding uh, widespread flooding and, and this was going to be a big footprint of flooding you know a lot of times when you talk about maybe seeing that kind of rainfall you're talking about very isolated areas and we knew that that was not going to be the case we were looking at a widespread flood covering um, you know a huge metro area we were we were fairly confident of that so that was really our challenge to get people to believe us and then kind of believe the impact so that they would understand that this, this is going to cause a lot of structure flooding and we're, we're trying to prevent loss of life. Um, so that's kind of some of the things that were going on. Uh, you know, as a meteorologist, you, you want to, we kind of checked with each other a lot. You know, are you seeing the same thing? Am I missing something? Cause you hate to, you hate to overdo it as well. Um, but, but anyway, that's kind of what, what I remember uh, going into kind of that Friday timeframe where we really started ramping up. Um, the forecast and we also coordinated everything with the weather prediction center uh, and, and and that was helpful because you, you can kind of soundboard with conference calls with them too where you can kind of bounce you know model guidance you know what are you thinking about this model because the, the the bullseye you know where who is going to get the most was really important to us and 
at first it kind of looked like it might be a little southwest of Houston, and that sort of transitioned northward uh, during the event. And uh, Jared's got a tweet Jared's up here to kind of talk about one that was sent out. This one, I think, was the tweet that kind of caught everyone's attention. Uh, this event is unprecedented, and all impacts are unknown and beyond anything experienced. Talk about yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot we used unprecedented as well. We we used every word we could think of, but you're right. That's a good. That was a good tweet. In fact, th I will say in this particular event, we manned a social media desk 24 hours a day uh, with just one person doing only social media. So I know we sent out more tweets than we've ever sent out an event, and I think it was very helpful for getting our our messaging out. In terms of forecasting where that kind of band was going to set up, how did you guys go about doing that? What were the things you were looking for? What were some of the, the models you were using, I guess, or yeah. some of the data you were using? So I, I thought that um, when you're kind of looking in the inside of, say, 18-hour time frame, the HER was just yeah, had some runs that, that really did well. And I remember working, I guess this would have been uh, Friday night into Saturday morning, I started looking at the HER forecasts that were getting out well into um, the evening hours of sat uh, Saturday. And there was one particular HER run, I don't want to say it was a 9 or 10 Z run, because before I went home, that advertised over 20 inches of rain and a band just kind of just to the west of Houston. And when I saw that, I knew I knew we were in trouble. And uh, I that changed my whole mood. I I, I, I believed it. I was looking at other models that were showing some banding that were going to set up. We knew Harvey was kind of drifting back towards us. So it all made sense. And I I remember actually briefing the Galveston County judge, you know, ask him how many high water vehicles do you have? And, and, and he told me, and I said, you're going to need to get more. And I said, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm not sure. I know I have to work tonight. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my family because I don't want them to have to deal with this flood and I'm not going to be there. You know, that crossed my mind Saturday morning, but I didn't know what to do with them because it was such a widespread event. So those are some of the things that kind of went through my head. Um, and this was a good 12 hours, you know, before that rain band really was disastrous. And with those rain bands, what did you guys identify or have you identified anything that made those bands just so intense? Well, you know, we had un unbelievable, you know, precipitable water values. I think it was around three inches or, or close to it, about as much as you can have. So we know from history, I mean, this isn't a whole lot different than what Allison did as far as rainfall rates, uh, nocturnal rainfall rates. So we know with tropical systems, a lot of time you do see the worst uh, rainfall at night. Um, I think that has something to do with the boundary layer decoupling a little bit and the, and the inflow jet it's more realized by the, by the convection. It's more uninterrupted. You don't have any turbulence and that inflow getting into your system. So, and we knew Harvey was basically drifting. And I remember on some of the briefings, I kept telling people, when have you seen a nearly stationary tropical cyclone that's inland, you know, with this much moisture, still very organized? That's another thing to point out. Never really lost banding throughout the event. When have you not seen this? not really bad. I mean, it's just a matter of where. So we were, we were on to that. We knew that. Uh, it was just the where because, like you said, it wasn't banding everywhere and the bands would sometimes slow down and then move. So we were using all the high resolution 
model guidance we could get every run looking at that trying to trying to pinpoint the bands and, and who was going to get impacted and, and so let's discuss for a moment just kind of the communication aspects you mentioned earlier that emergency managers were in your building so what were some of the things and you mentioned already the high water vehicles what were some of the things that they were asking you and you were telling them well one, one of one of the big ones was when is it going to stop because you know the 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 thing is, is you have lulls in these events. So uh, we also tried to explain to people, this is a marathon. It's not, it's not a sprint. It's not a one night event for us. So trying to get people to stay on guard and, and emergency management in particular is okay. You know, we had a lot of rain Friday night and then there was a break during the day on Saturday for a lot of people, but we knew that we were going to have banding that night. So it was trying to make sure they realized, Hey, this isn't over. So, you know, like I said, timing the different threats of when the heavy rain was coming back, that that was something critical to try to forecast. Um, and then they always want to know the amounts. You know, they emergency managers are pretty savvy. They've worked events. They know in general what eight to ten inches does in their area. You know, they they may not know what forty inches does, but but you know, if you tell them, hey, tonight you could see ten or twenty inches of rain, you don't really need to say a whole lot more. Uh, they're going to go into, oh my goodness, that's that could be horrible if it sets over over my county. So amounts are always critical. And, and like I said, Harvey was was difficult because, you know, during the event, the, the amounts, you had to keep saying, well, how much more, you know, what's the additional rainfall going to be? And then they also want to know what have we had in that area? So it was kind of a bookkeeping thing to try to keep communicating what's happened and what's going to happen for different areas. So we were also kind of working on that in our communication. So we sent a lot of information statements out just summarizing what's happened in the last 24 or 48 or 72 hours, and then also showing, you know, what's still probably coming. So I've never worked an event where there were this many days of flooding potential in a row. And that that was just flat out scary. <laughs> it just It's hard to communicate. It, it, there's some unknowns in there because you get the breaks. And so, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than it was, that's a real challenge. And this was a storm that got so much national media attention. Uh, was your office involved in doing interviews? I mean, it's almost like a, you know, something that's really come up in the last couple of years, these Skype interviews, all these FaceTime interviews and stuff. Is that additional workload put on the office? Yeah, that's a good question. So we actually got less of that than we thought. And I think what happened was, you know, we, we had impacts even Friday night. And so once it starts raining and flooding, a lot of the attention goes to what's happening out in your community. And so that is kind of strange how that happened. We seem to get less requests for interviews, you know, once those impacts showed up. So we did a little bit more of that on say, ahead of the landfall than we actually did probably as far as I remember. I was working nighttime, so I'm sure there was a little bit more in the daytime than I was dealing with, but it wasn't what you might expect. I remember during Ike, there were a lot of interviews and a lot of cameras in the operations area, and that that really didn't happen during Harvey. Working in the media, I mean, it's sad to say, but since it was a weekend, that may have uh, actually limited it just a little bit. There's usually a little less staff in our offices on uh, weekends. Um, yeah, no doubt. Your relationship with the local media there, though, I mean, obviously, uh, KHOU had some major impacts. Other stations were having impacts. Uh, what was the relationship between the Weather Service and your broadcast partners? 
so we, we've had a really good relationship um, with the with our broadcast partners mainly because in the last several years we've been doing these uh, meetings what we call integrated warning team meetings you're probably familiar with that um, we had every everybody participate in the media and they're very active on chat um, so that that went really really well I don't I think we as far as I saw that you know everybody was kind of with the same message we didn't get a lot of people you know sometimes if you go out with an extreme forecast you might get second guessed in the media but as far as I know that didn't really happen and you have to remember that you know our global models did fairly fairly well with that heavy rain and, and incredible QPF signal in them so the I think that's part of the reason why the uh, the, the, the meteorologists that are on air you know they were they were generally on board with us from what I could uh, I could tell which is it's tough to go on camera and tell people you know th those kind of rainfall amounts and and you, you hope you don't see it but at the same time you don't want to be wrong either because that would be the ultimate cry wolf if it didn't happen um are, are there any main any stories i guess or, or big thoughts that come to mind from harvey things that really stu stuck out to you uh during the storm or after the storm well one thing that's really tragic is that 80 percent of the people in this area do not have flood insurance so that's just a sobering fact um i think some of this will be addressed with some of the remapping of flood zones uh, that's going to happen in this area. But, you know, this was our fourth unbelievable flood, really. I mean, this one really obviously affected a lot more people and, and was in a different category. But we had some Memorial Day uh, flooding and the tax day flooding um, where more people were obviously severely impacted and flooded as well. But to me, that's one thing that stands out and why it's so tragic. I mean, there's people that they're still trying to put their lives together. I mean, they can't get back in their home. Their home may not, you may not be able to go back to, I know you can't go back to some of the homes. So it's a long recovery. And that's another thing that uh, that's unfortunate that's going to stick with us is, you know, just the incredible, I mean, setting the rainfall record uh, for a tropical cyclone in the United States will always stick with me. The 60.58 inches that's over there was measured near Nederland, Texas, uh, just east of us. I mean, that's... <laughs> There's just some numbers coming out of Harvey that I will never, ever forget. You know, the, the amount of rain just falling in Harris County was estimated a trillion gallons could run Niagara Falls uh, for 15 days. I mean, it's just hard to comprehend, really. So th there's a lot that uh, will stick with me, unfortunately. And Tom, he mentioned people still displaced. We ran a story at my station, uh, I guess about two or three weeks ago now, about Rockport and how a lot of people are still displaced. Is that the case in a areas where the eyewall came ashore? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a year or more before that's, you know, a lot, lot of folks, Port Aransas, Rockport, uh, tons of them living in hotels here around Corpus Christi. Um, a lot of others have moved in with family. Some will never go back. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, you should see the amount of debris. We, we went up there uh, a few weeks ago, got some staff up there, and there's literally almost a mile-long section of the median of the big highway that runs up through Aransas County that's just debris. It's, you know, they got one humongous pile of wood and another humongous pile of stuff. And they're sorting through it all and burning it and mulching it and hauling it off. And there's that pile. And then there's four more piles just as big that are on the backside of the airport property. So just dealing with the mountains of, of waste and debris that used to be people's homes and all the trees, um, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. Mind boggling in so many ways, the storm and in the aftermath. 
Um, let's talk real quick, uh, Lance, about 100-year, 500-year, 1,000-year flood stuff and how that gets brought up every single time there's a flood. Um, what's your perspective on that, I guess? Or and what would you classify Harvey if it even meets any of those criteria? Yeah, that <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, you're going to see a lot uh, out there, different groups writing about that. I know Carrie Emanuel from MIT has already got a uh, – kind of a, a quick paper done trying to estimate those kind of things. You know, I, I, I think when when you're dealing with trying to estimate, you know, return periods that are beyond where you've actually measured weather, there, there's a lot of uncertainty. So when you hear 500 or even heard more than that, um, heard people talk about, you know, this is biblical because this probably hasn't happened in 2000 years. but the problem I have with some of that is it's just statistic. It's just kind of extending stats, maybe a little, in my mind, a little further than you can do and really have a lot of faith in it. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Um, so I put a lot more faith in a hundred year event right now than, than I would some of the longer term, term return periods. And then the other problem we have with even a hundred year event, you have to revisit it because things don't stay the same. And, you know, we, we know that climate is changing. Uh, climate's always changing. So there, there's a lot to that. Um, and I'm not really an expert in that. I would just say when I see those numbers, you know, I, I've read a lot about it because I want to understand it more. And the more and more I read, the more and more I just kind of scratch my head and say, wow, we, we really may not have a great handle on that. But it's important to try to get a good handle on that because that's what all your planning and your infrastructure communities are planning for you know they want to design for the floods that they're going to see and so it's important work it's just difficult it's difficult and uh and and i'm still i'm like i said i'm still going to try to learn about that as much as i can ashley and lance too if you want to add to it uh now that we're after the storm will we go back in and kind of revisit any of these flood maps or rezone properties and stuff what will be the process in doing that Oh, definitely, especially in some of the areas where they didn't anticipate flooding. Maybe they thought that they were safe, but they were not due to, like you guys said, unprecedented storm. So now that we have the results of what some of these uh, greater rain-making storms can do, we're probably going to send FEMA surveyors and other surveyors to redo those maps once again, take a look at the plains, take a look at the rules, because different communities have different laws and rules and zoning for where you're allowed to build. So they're going to reassess all of that kind of thing. Um, me personally, with the whole 100 year, 500 year thing, I don't like the terminology because it's very confusing to the public. A lot of people literally think, oh, well, if it floods, you know, this one time, then it's not going to happen again 100 years. No, it's your 1% chance a year of that flood. So I think when we're talking about um, talking about this kind of flooding and getting outreach to the public, we need to change the terminology with that. So maybe people will kind of understand a little better the, the risk for the flooding that they have. I think there's a misconception too that, and I was at a meeting recently, it was in New Orleans and you know, someone half jokingly said the way that if you live in, in the state of Louisiana, the way that you know you need flood insurance is if the letters L and A are on your driver's license. So of course, everybody has LNA on their driver's license. So I think you see something similar where folks feel like, hey, I'm outside the 100 year flood plan. I'm not required to have flood insurance. We see that all the time here in Corpus Christi. Um, they feel like they're safe. 
And then an event of a much longer recurrence period comes along that's catastrophic or biblical, and they feel like, you know, how could they have known? So that, that's that's one of the dangers we see is tying things into that hundred year, when um, you know the reality is we're getting these these are catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, we had, we had a thousand year storm here. They called it in Charleston, um, South Carolina, two thousand fifteen in October, uh, the one that nobody will forget. But you know, a thousand years. I mean, that that's that's just like Ashley said, very confusing. I mean, now now there's an Eastern Seaboard Coalition of all the coastal states with the with the state DHEC uh, sort of launched MyCoast.org, and they they're sort of going for coastal resiliency and trying to to finite their laws and trying to figure out. Uh, where the most damages are being done for for coastal resiliency, like I said, um, and that that's that's what the East Coast is doing on our side. I don't know about the Gulf or what the efforts are there, but you know this is becoming a reality. Today's floods are, are tomorrow's norms. That's the saying. Yeah, good good point. Everybody made a great point there. I, I like you know Ashley's point about saying you know using the one percent rather than you know every year. That that's definitely a better way to term a one hundred year flood. I think for the public. Um, and I know Noah is about to update the flood, the, you know, the, the recurrence intervals here. They've got a preliminary document here for the Texas, for Texas uh, that'll become final later on. And they are considering what's been happening here recently. So there will be some changes. Um, and when you're talking about changes where there's six and a half million people, um, that's, that, that could be significant for, for building and zoning and design. So it'll be interesting you know, to see what happens in that arena going forward. Like, what are the changes being made uh, to handle flooding in Houston? I've got one more question. This one, this was for Tom. This is as uh, the, the storm was making landfall. And I just want to ask how you thought the data in that area was doing. Now, this, this is going to be pulled from uh, our data scope, which you're familiar with, with weather flow from some of our mesonet, our coastal mesonet. And some of this data uh, blipped out a little bit early on during the storm. Uh, this is Port Aransas, uh, or I'm sorry, this is Aransas Pass that I'm showing right here. And you see the data just kind of clipped out about 5.30, 5.33, that was it. Uh, you had 61 knot winds and then in gusts, and that was it for that station. Then uh, not too far over to the east was Port Aransas, and that one blipped out a little bit later, about 10 and 10 or 10.15. And so there was no more data there, but you, you had enough data to say, wow, look at the pressure go from 12.48 a.m. at 1,008 millibars down to 959 millibars by 9 p.m. That is significant drop in pressure. And then actually you can see what the eye wall is there as the winds are dropping down. But once this data is gone, you lose those points of, of reference. So how do you feel that the data uh, did, what, how do you feel the data did for you in that area as, it, as the storm made landfall? Uh, it was a mixed bag. The, the, the ASOS systems, the weather services observing equipment at, uh, at Corpus Christi, at Victoria, at Rockport, all went down very early in the storm, right around 60 or 65 knots. Um, commercial power was lost, and and they were just they just they just were gone. So that that's that's a concern, and that's something we, we certainly have, have seen that before. We, I, we noticed it with Irma, um, and it happened with Maria. Uh, that that the, those aviation, the airport systems, just they go down. Um, but other NOAA-owned sensors, the, the former TCOON, the Texas Coastal Observing Network, now owned by uh, the National Ocean Service and co-ops, those stations stayed up, including the one there at, at the Port Aransas at the jetty and multiple other stations up along the waterways. That was the data we, we knew. We, you know, the highest wind gust we were aware of real time was at the, at the jetty there at Port Aransas, 132 miles an hour. So we had that data 
real time. And that was critical. And we've, of course, we were looking at the weather flow data too. We had enough data that we could give our partners that were involved with the situation good information about what was coming in in the eyewall. Um, but a lot of the systems on the, on the extremities of the storm uh, went down and were down for days. Understood. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll pass that on to Eric. I think Eric had a question for you. Yeah. Good evening, guys. Um, so I know <clears throat> specifically with Tom, I know you've had a, a good amount of experience in the past with your uh, time in Nashville of um, of being able to use social media to get inbound um, reports of what's going on. And I, I just wanted to ask both of you about um, about how that played a role in this um, as far as you know, getting those reports from people, <clears throat> what they were seeing, uh, pictures of what they were uh, what they were experiencing, um, and maybe even you know, were you was there some of that use also from an emergency management perspective as far as you know, pleas for help and and so forth? How how did social media play a role in this? You know, in, in our in our much like Lance said earlier, we we staffed a social media person that did both English and Spanish social media through the event. So that was something that we were we were very happy we were able to do. Uh, we doubled our Twitter followers through the event, which was, was a lot for us. But in real time, I think most folks here were in a hunker down mentality. This wasn't the kind of system you really report on or spot. Most folks were just inside hunkered down um, in the eyewall. People had either evacuated or they were they were in their safest place they could get. So the information we got was was a little sketchy, really, in real time. It wasn't like a tornado outbreak or, or, or you know big severe thunderstorm where you're getting real time spotter reports and information coming in through your, through your various social media feeds it was i won't say radio silence but there was a lot of, of periods there where we weren't getting a lot of information and just kind of had to guess how bad it was lance one last question uh regarding tornadoes because that was a huge thing that we saw during the uh storm in houston talk to me about all the tornado warnings that were issued and how you guys kind of went about issuing those yeah so uh <laughs> tornado watch continuously for four days. So <laughs> I, I think that's got to be a record. You know, it'd be interesting to find out. I'm pretty sure it has to be. Um, I bet it's so close. we did. <laughs> I bet it's yeah, so, close. So that's uh that that creates a little bit of fatigue for your for your for your warning people. And uh so we had to switch some people in and out on that. There were just so many uh, rain bands coming on shore that, that had cells within them that were rotating. There was a lot to watch. And it was, like I said, it was fairly constant. Um, it led, led to 157 tornado warnings from Friday morning through Monday evening. Um, and we've confirmed, I think it's in the upper 20s as far as the number of tornadoes that we actually saw. And we saw, you know, we, we even had, I, I believe we had one EF2 tornado. Um, so, they weren't all just, you know, EF zeros either. So it, it was an interesting event and we're still studying that. We're, what we're actually doing right now is we're going back and trying to document every couplet and warning to try to, you know, just to go back and see, you know, where all of these, uh, you know, which ones were actually tied to tornadoes that we know of, you know, what, what were the actual signatures, you know, actually getting the numbers you know, the gate to gate numbers, <clears throat> what they look like in the vertical, because one thing you run into when you're looking at multiple circulations that may only live for 10 or 15 minutes is you're just constantly going to the next one. And <clears throat> that was challenging. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, 
I think we'll learn a lot more as we go through. It takes a lot of time. We have a couple of forecasters working on that. Um, but we really want to learn from it. We want to learn, hey, is there a way we could have gotten that false alarm rate down a little bit? Because do we really have to warn for, you know, put out that many warnings for that many confirmed tornadoes? And it may turn out that, yes, we, you know, to get them all warned for, that's pretty much what you had to do. So that'll be interesting to me to see <clears throat> what we come up with. And I've heard that there is going to be a service assessment on Harvey. Is that something that'll be looked at, I imagine, during that process? Yeah, they, they, they've already, you know, come and visited uh, both, both offices. Um, we did talk about tornadoes. I think their main emphasis will be the flooding because of all the, you know, we had, unfortunately, a significant number of people lose their lives. So we're going to, I'm sure it'll be somewhat from a, probably look at the flood messaging uh, as much as anything is, you know, is there ways that we can do anything better there? Um, but yeah, I think everything is fair game and we, we all, we want to always improve. So I hope, you know, I hope that not only us, our own agency, but we have some academic partners that will study Harvey's tornadoes in particular. All right. Uh, anything else you guys you know want to bring up or you think is important to talk about with Harvey? Uh, we're getting close to the end here, and I want to uh, kind of wrap all of our conversation up. But I want to give you both just a moment to tell us anything else you wanted to mention about the storm. I, I think for us, it was just it was an awakening for for the whole area. It'd been you know it'd been since 1961 that Texas had had a Cat Four. Um, it was the first major to hit the the Corpus area since 1970. Um, so we'd gone a long time here without a significant direct hit from a hurricane. But you look back historically, back into the 1800s, and there's been periods of two or three major hurricanes hitting the coast in 10-year periods along the Texas coast. So I'm not, I'm not prognosticating that's what we're going to get into, but I think it's, it's something for people here to realize is in active periods, these things can be a way of life. These, these can be, they can be almost normal where they're happening every few years. And, and, and don't, don't we got it out of the way. We're good for a while now because I'm, I'm hearing a little of that. So we got to keep people on guard. Next season could be as bad or worse. Yeah, I think I think you know that's that's always preparedness is our focus. Um, and so one thing that you know I, I have actually been out in the community saying this before, but I'm going to emphasize it even more that you know how important I think flood insurance is. That's one thing that that I'm going to keep keep messaging. Um, we have a team that looks at flash flood messaging. Um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, and as that, we have both emergency management and media partners. So we're gonna continue to look at ways that we message, you know, calls to action. You know, Harvey was, was really interesting from the messaging standpoint because we had areas under a tornado warning where people were also being told to go to their roof because of flooding. So we need to sort of think about when you have these floods and tornadoes, you know, what is your message? I mean, obviously that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So <clears throat> there's a lot of things we can look at, I think, from the messaging messaging standpoint uh, with Harvey and we'll we'll be studying it again, you know, multi multi-agency, multi-partner. Uh, how can we be more effective? I know we saved a lot of lives just by sort of being ready for it as we could have been. So I know, you know. Houston and Harris County, they were they were ready for that night. They were as ready as they could be, uh, you know, and they had personnel ready to block off roads and and things like that. So, TxDOT was ready as they could be. But still, you know, 
I, you know, we have people losing their lives. So we need to figure out, is there anything else we can do, you know, to reduce that? Sure. Well, I think in closing, just thank you guys all for both your offices, all the work you guys put in for the storm and for, during and after we really appreciate it. And watching from afar, you know, uh, I can't imagine what it was like in the offices, but I can tell you that the messages seem to have gotten out and we really appreciate all your efforts during it. So thank Scotty, you. Uh, with that, we'll give it back to you and we'll talk about the next storm, which is <laughs> our slight, slight chance of a flurry or something like that in North Carolina, right? Very, yes, very, very. So I do want to say, uh, Lance, if you and uh, Tom want to give out your social medias for uh, weather offices or how maybe our followers can uh, keep up with the progress that's going on in Houston or in Corpus Christi, I'll give you the opportunity to do that right now. And um, we're, we're at NWS Corpus. <laughs> right. Yeah, and we're at uh, NWS Houston, so that's pretty easy. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I know both of you have had a long day, so we'll, we'll let you guys get on. But uh, thank you for your hard work, like Ricky said, and uh, Merry Christmas to you guys. And hopefully you can get some time with your family and, and some rest down there. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, Ricky, uh, as you were talking about uh, winter weather, I guess we're going to jump into that a little for Ray um, here in the, uh, the next 48 hours or so. I guess uh, your area... Uh, in my area here in Western North Carolina, I have it. But Eric, I don't know about you. Do you guys expect anything from this uh, this cold air Arctic plunge before it gets here in the southeast? Good Lord, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but everything comes to, to uh, Memphis, I heard. No, we were um, we were actually uh, there was a little bit of a chance for Friday, Saturday, a couple of days ago. I think the weather service even put a twenty percent chance of a snow shower in. Uh, but it looks like we're going to get right on the uh the border of that ridge to the west and the and the big trough to the east and so the the uh short waves that are rotating around that low are going to stay to our north and east and we should be able to uh avoid it it's just going to be cold and dry here yeah that's i thought that but i just want to make sure uh ricky uh with you and i i guess dealing with it the most uh shay you and jared are actually helping in the assistance because that cold front has really stalled out uh, in your neck of the woods and it looks like, uh, Shay, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. I know you've been posting some. We're going to see several um, low-pressure systems develop on it and kind of right up the front off the coast. Yeah, yeah, we'll see some Gulf moisture wrapping up. Uh, Jared, may, you may be a little bit more plugged into the local weather here. Um, but from what I've been watching over the last few days is, is this front just sort of stalling out over us. We had a pretty mild day today, actually. It was fairly warm the last one uh, for a while here. Once once this front makes its way through and these northerly winds bite down over the area, it's gonna get cool for quite some time. But yeah, lots of Gulf moisture pumping up along that front. So we'll get we'll get low pressures uh, sort of, um, you know, developing right off the coast. Sometimes they form in the Gulf, they transfer right over into the Atlantic and then they did develop off the coastline, which can add sort of a wraparound moisture feature with cold air diving in behind it. Depends on what level um, that cold air comes down. A lot of times you get a warm nose into the coastline where that low pressure is wrapping uh, a warm layer into the coast. And then you end up just with cold rain or maybe maybe sleet or freezing rain uh, along areas more eastern North Carolina. But I don't think there's a big chance for snow, maybe upstate South Carolina. I think some flurries are in the forecast, but we may have a chance for some of that in South Carolina. And Jared, I don't know if you've heard anything else about South Carolina, but I know North Carolina is, is bracing for some sort of wintry precipitation coming up. Uh, that could be blended in with with this at least for central to portions of the piedmont and then maybe turning over to snow in the upstate yeah 
It, it's it's interesting, uh, Shay, that you're talking about that. The models uh, today ha have really kind of hit on a more uh, northwest jog, uh, which they tend to do a couple of days out before a system affects you. I, I know the NAM. I know the latest NAM is going out right now, but I know the NAM was kind of bullish in its figures. Uh, the GFS and both the European are both uh, showing some uh, precipitation over North Carolina. Uh, anywhere between uh, Raleigh, Greensboro, Charlotte, uh, Hickory, back into Asheville, uh, kind of a rain-snow mix. But the problem is, is uh, you know, our, our ground temperatures are still in the yeah, upper floor. So anything that does fall, it's going to have a hard time sticking. It's going to have to be pretty heavy for it to uh, for it to fall and stick. And then also the cold air, um, we have it aloft, but not really at the surface. Uh, the high pressure, not the ideal location for a big snow in North Carolina. But uh, still enough, I think uh, Friday, Friday evening into early Saturday morning, uh, the chances of seeing some snowflakes fall will, will be pretty good. And, uh, you know, if a few areas can, can get snow hard enough uh, at, at times that temperatures are, are at or around freezing, we may see a little bit of accumulation on grassy surfaces. But I don't foresee any road problems, anything like that. More of a novelty, more of a thing of saying, hey, it snowed before Christmas in the southeast, and you normally don't see that. But, Ricky, you guys dealing with this, but you're also going to be dealing with some northwest flow up there in east Tennessee and, and the North Carolina mountains. Yeah, you know, you were talking about the, the snow there in North Carolina. I think we may have the same situation to a degree. Although we have some cooler temperatures today. It was too cold for me. Uh, temperatures today only reached up like in the 30s. But I think North Carolina, you know, Scott, it's been one of those setups where – get that heavy burst of snow, it covers everything, and then literally an hour later, there's not even a trace of it left. Um, for us in Western North Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina uh, and East Tennessee, the Friday situation is interesting because it really depends on how far west the moisture gets. We've seen setups like this before where a lot of the moisture looks like it's gonna be east of the mountains, and then kind of in the days leading up to it, it trends west a little bit, and that's what we've been noticing to a degree. We're really gonna be on that peripheral edge of any moisture, um, but I wouldn't be shocked, honestly, to get some snowflakes in the North Carolina or Tennessee mountains Friday. And then we go into Saturday and you mentioned another cold spell on a little clipper system coming down with that one. It's interesting because it's going to be a little bit dependent on the track. Some models been wanting the moisture to go a little further north, some a little further south, some straight through uh, my heart of my DMA, which is southwest Virginia, northeast Tennessee. So I'm more confident in Saturday, I guess than I am on Friday. Uh, I could see a light accumulation even in the valleys of Tennessee. Mountains, you know, with Northwest flow snow and temperatures that are dropping down into the 30s and 20s at night, uh, you're gonna have some pretty good snow making for the uh, ski slopes and just natural Northwest flow snow off the Great Lakes. You know, they could pick up, especially towards peaks of the mountains, a couple inches, if not maybe close to winter storm warning criteria in a few places. Um, probably more on the North Carolina side, I imagine the Tennessee side. But, you know, Rome Mountain, uh, White Top, Virginia, parts of Grayson County, some eastern Wythe County areas, uh, and then into Unicoi, portions of Carter, Johnson counties. It wouldn't shock me to see maybe an inch or, or two of snow, especially if you can get above 3,500, 4,000 feet. It just depends on how much moisture it is and how scattered the snow showers are. Unfortunately, this isn't a you know, huge band of moisture moving towards us. It's kind of going to be scattered snow showers. But what this flow is an incredible thing to me. It always seems to find a way to to get things done so i'm sure we'll be talking about snow as we go into uh saturday night and sunday morning across my area it does ricky and shay i know you had that product pulled up could you i'm sorry i know you just took it down but yeah sure sure no problem yep this is 
This, this is, is the Saturday weather. morning right here. You want me to back it up? I can just kind of. Yeah, Saturday morning is fine. This is the Weather Prediction Center. Uh, this is kind of their probabilities of, of snow. And Shay, if you could zoom in more into the North and South Carolina area, that'll kind of give you some of the areas. I think it's uh, Greensboro back towards Asheville, Hickory, maybe the I-40 corridor uh, per se is like 50 to 60% chance of at least one inch of snow. Uh, and then uh, that little um, map, you can do two, four, six, eight, and so on inches of snow. But that uh, with an inch of snow, that's a pretty good uh, 50 to 60% chance for Western North Carolina. So like Ricky said, if it gets snow hard enough, you know, it, it will accumulate, but it also met away pretty quickly too with the warm ground temperatures. What I've been telling people, and you know, there's not really a storm in the offering, but this pattern, I'd love for you, all of you guys to jump in on this. This pattern really sets up or really says, hey, you know, we could see a winter storm somewhere develop in the southeast uh, with the, uh, the polar jet, uh, polar vortex uh, ejecting a little lobe of energy down here. So the cold temperatures will be here uh, after this weekend and an active storm track. I wouldn't be surprised next week or the week after that that uh, storm chances go up uh, or con continue to stay elevated uh, as we uh, enter this stormy pattern. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised to see Atlanta and some of these areas of Georgia also uh, have a higher percentage rate. I mean, that typically you see Atlanta, they get some of this ascension, they get some of that Gulf moisture and that cold mixture uh, dropping off the end of the Appalachian Mountains over that area. And, and so that, that all, you know, that tends to happen. Then we see the chances expanding all the way over to New Orleans and, and then parts of Texas too, a little bit earlier on for Friday, I believe. Uh, so you can see that string of, of uh, percentage of wintry precipitation or probability uh, a little bit on the light side as far as when you go further south, but along the backside of that stalled cold front, you can kind of see the trend there. Uh, so whatever drops down from the north, any of those little short waves of low pressure that drop down will add to it. Uh, it just depends on how much energy there is. And, and a lot of times that frozen column is, is a northwesterly sort of drifting down along the, the bottom end of that jet stream dip higher up. So we'll see what happens. It should be pretty interesting. But either way, it, you know, this is going to be around for a long time, this cold air mass will be around in the southeast for a while. Uh, next couple of weeks for the unforeseeable future, really may have a few fluctuations and highs for the days, but the lows at night are going to be pretty chilly for most folks down here. I agree. And Miss Ashley, you guys also had flurries in your forecast, right? Sure did. So we were really happy with this system because we've really had about three weeks of just sun, dry conditions. Um, uh, as an emergency manager, I'm really concerned about La Nina for Texas because that means um, little rainfall, very warm. Uh, we're concerned about wildfires, especially going into the spring next year. So just getting the system to come through and we got rain all day today. I think we're projected to get about two inches of rain, which is helpful. And then our uh, low temperatures tonight, we're not going to hit freezing tonight, but we're going to get into the 30s and there's a chance for just some uh, flurries a little bit in my county. Um, nothing serious at all. And our grounds are, like you guys said, way too warm from the past um, heat wave for anything to go on. So we're kind of excited just to see the winter precipitation. And I had to talk down some people, especially like our road and bridge and stuff, because when you start throwing winter out there, they freak out and want to go get the salt trucks. But we're going to be okay, so maybe we'll get to see a couple flurries here and there. But we're just excited for the precipitation. And, and like you said, um, right now, you know, our thoughts are in prayers with the folks of California. You know, seeing um, all the pictures coming out of California right now is just, it's crazy. You know, we had our fire season last year in the southeast, but 
goodness, some of the the pitchers out of Los Angeles is just just astounding. I mean, that is crazy. Yep, and with you know Harvey and all the rainfall in Texas, and then we're kind of drying up. All that rainfall brought a lot of fuel, which is now going to dry up. So if we are going to trend on the drier side to the spring, we're probably going to expect quite an active wildfire season. So we're hoping to take precautions now and maybe take care of some of that fuel. But I've been constantly hammering home the fact that we're going to be more at risk of that. So it's something to look out for in the uh, next upcoming months. Definitely. And we're uh, going to be talking with uh, about forest fires uh, in January. We're going to be talking about how forecast for those. So we'll transition to uh, kind of closing the show out tonight. Next week, Miss Ashley is our guest. She's been our panelist the past couple of weeks, but next week we're going to really get in depth and, and learn about uh, what Ashley does. She uh, works in Texas with emergency management. And Ashley, you've done a lot of research on tornadoes and uh, things like that. So we're looking forward to uh, talking with you uh, for the entire hour next year, next week. Yeah, I'm totally um, really excited to be here and be able to talk about uh, how I'm kind of learning how to integrate weather and meteorology and science into emergency management, how we can mesh those two and kind of work together through multidisciplinary background that I have. So I can't wait for next week. Well, we're looking forward to it as well. And uh, after Ashley's show, we're going to have uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard on with us on the 20th, I think that is. Uh, and that'll be our uh, conclusion for the 2017 season of the Carolina Weather Group. And uh, we'll take the next week off and enjoy uh, the holidays with our families. And then we'll go back at it strong in January. So uh, for everyone here uh, in the Carolinas, we hope that you have a, a nice, safe afternoon and evening and enjoy the snow flurries uh, this weekend. And until uh, then, stay warm and we'll see you next Wednesday night here on the Carolina Weather Group.